You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, when I see something in California that does not make sense, because there's a lot about California that doesn't make sense, I like to reach out to the folks at the California Policy Center, because they seem to have their fingers on the pulse of just about everything that's happening within the state. And if you're like me, and you want to get information, you go to the source. So normally when I see something in the headlines like AB 257 and something that was mentioned last week about some sort of compromise in the fast food industry, in the formation of the Fast Food Council, which is a state bureaucracy that was being set up, I wanted to find out what was happening. So I reached out to my friend Lance Christensen, who's been on the podcast a number of times, and he was unavailable, but he recommended getting Will Swaymont. Now, Will is the president of the California Policy Center and has a unique background, to say the least, which he'll get into. But Will and I had a robust conversation about not just AB 257, we had an update about AB 5, and a whole lot more about that state. In any case, without further ado, here's Will Swaym from the California Policy Center. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Will Swaim, welcome to Labor Relations Radio, and it is an honor to get the president of the California Policy Center on. And I noticed with your bio, you're, you've got a, a rich bio, but you're a 30-year recovering journalist, right? That's and, right. And also uh, co-host of Radio Free California. Mm-hmm. So Welcome. Thank you, man. Good to be here. We have a lot to talk about. And I started just by asking about AB 257, which is the California Fast Food Council bill that was out there. But then I was wondering, I was listening to you a little while ago on the Mike Rowe show talking about AB 5, and I was wondering if you have an update about that. What's going on with the freelance, killing the freelancers out in California? Are they dead? Uh, Well, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Dead and leaving. Um, it has been uh, it's it's been a dramatic few years under Assembly Bill Five. That was created interestingly by a woman named Lorena Gonzalez, who was in the State Assembly at the time. Lorena uh, was a Teamsters official in San Diego before she got elected to the Assembly, and as far as I could tell, took no pause in the work. It was the same work, just right. in a different venue. Uh, carrying uh, bills for the California Federation of Labor, the Teamsters, etc. Um, very pro, extraordinarily pro-union. I mean, this is a, I, I don't mean to sound hyperbolic, but this is a person for whom labor organization is but a brief step toward a kind of government authority in every area of your life. And Assembly Bill 5 is a great uh, description of that or illustration of that premise. Uh, of course, just, you know, quick highlight for those who weren't following along. It basically made it almost impossible for a whole range of freelance contractors to uh, to continue as freelance contractors. Most notably, when I was on with Mike Rowe, we talked about its impact on independent trucking. And for those who don't really know about the business, it's absolutely amazing. I, I, I 
I got, I came to Mike's attention because I wrote a story about a guy named Tom Odom who had grown up in East LA in a really tough neighborhood. Uh, first kid in his family to graduate from high school in generations, as far as he knew. Uh, first kid in his family to break $100,000. And how did he do that? Um, he started driving a truck as a part-time driver, you know, sitting like co-pilot on cross-country rigs, mm. and then decided, you know, if I save up enough money, I might be able to invest and buy my own tractor and pull these things. So um, he did that in the 80s. Uh, he's about my age, early 60s. So in the 1980s, he starts his own little independent trucking firm, just hauling short and long distances with his own rig. And he makes $100,000 his first year out of the box. I mean, he's just shocked by this. His family considers him like royalty at this point. How did you escape poverty? How did you do this? I did it by starting my own business, you know? So flash forward, and the guy owns a couple of rigs now, and he's got this big business going, and he's hauling stuff around California and outside of California from the massive ports we have here in L.A., San Francisco, Oakland. And um, suddenly AB5 comes down and says, no, 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 you, Tom Odom, have to go to work with the Teamsters. Now, he had a brief experience, Tom Odom did, in the 1980s working for the Teamsters, and he hated it. He hated the fact that they tried to molecularly tell him what he could do every single instance of his job. The very things he loved about his work, that he could accept and decline work, that he could set his own hours uh, with his, uh, with, you know, as a vendor, with the person who was employing him. He loved that freedom. It's one of the reasons he said, I, I love my office out on the road. You know, I, mm -hmm. I like being out there. And suddenly he said it was like office work, like he literally had to get the approval of the Teamsters to do virtually anything. So he opted out and went independent. Uh, but AB5 uh, is, a, is designed, it's not a bug, it's a feature of the law, if you're a Democrat, that it basically makes every independent contractor go to work in an easily unionized industrial space, like trucking. Uh, they had the big trucking companies on their side when they passed this bill. But here's the, the the bump in the road. Along the way to writing AB5, various special interests, and my favorite one is my own industry, the newspaper industry, um, were adamantly opposed to AB5 while it was going through the state legislature, adamantly opposed. So there's a special carve out for them because newspapers were opposing this thing saying, look, you'll drive us out of business. We depend on freelance writers, photographers, graphic designers, uh, newspaper carriers, you know, the guy who throws the paper out on your street or puts it in a box on a corner, on a street corner. All of those people are freelance. The newspaper industry said, you'll just destroy our model. And they just kept editorializing against it, just like, you know, this will wreck havoc. As soon as Lorena Gonzalez, the author of AB5, makes an exemption for them and for a few other key players in the business, the newspapers drop all their opposition, all of it. And they suddenly right. become huge advocates of this because it no longer harms them, right? So they're free to go. So a, a federal judge in California about, um, I'm going to say, six or eight months ago, made this just absolutely amazing decision. He said the manufacturing of this bill, which it, with its carve-outs for special interests, the fact that it was negotiated in part with affected industries to carve out them but not others, meant that it was nothing but a special interest giveaway and violated both state and federal law. He was a federal judge, so he wasn't really discussing the particulars of the state. So AB5 has kind of been exempted now to death. 
Uh, the truckers are still in trouble. Tom Odom is still planning to move his family out of California's Central Valley, where he lives, and likely to end up in Texas or Florida, and uh, join the other 800,000 Californians who've left the state uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, by the way, we've lost a congressional seat for the first time since William McKinley was shot to death in, like, 1901. Um, we're, we're supposed to lose another five congressional seats, all because of population declines in California. I'm telling you, you know that. Uh, yeah, that is, is with the amount of immigrants coming in, you're still losing people. Yes. Yeah. Still losing people. Uh, immigration is not replacing uh, the departure of Californians. The net loss to us has now exceeded over five years, over a million people. Uh, and as I say, this is the first time population is stalled in California in over a century. And uh, and you can thank the current establishment and and and. These laws, you know, like AB5, as I point out, are built by state lawmakers who have been whose campaigns have been financed by unions. So once they get right. into the state house, they just turn around and they they return the favor. Uh, and you know, just to set the context here, you know, of AB5, California's unions, uh, government unions, and private sector unions. Well, let's just stick with the government unions. Government unions in California, teachers, cops, firefighters, DMV workers, SEIU, AFSCME, you name it, they bring in about a billion dollars per year. That's $2 billion every election cycle for politics. And that makes them far and away the largest political donors in California. We have 12% of the nation's population. We have 25% of its government workers. Very disproportionate representation there on the government union side. And that money just has distorted our politics so badly. Uh, but I guess that's what we're here to talk about, isn't it? Well, you know, I mentioned before I hit the record button that, and I, and I think visually, so the picture in my mind is for those of us in the rest of the country watching like a badminton game, and instead of the birdie, it's a pile of poop that is getting lobbed back and forth, bad ideas going from California to New York to New Jersey to Illinois. And it's so, and we've used this expression on the podcast. I think Lance might've coined the term, but California is the Petri dish of bad ideas. Yeah. And it, I, I look at it as, because that's my native state, that it's almost as though it's wholly run by unions. There's no common sense and even to the extent that you've got Silicon Valley that's coming up with all this AV and, you know, autonomous vehicles. And then you've got the Teamsters this week telling Gavin Newsom he needs to sign the bill that you can't have autonomous trucks out on the road, which is, you know, there's, okay, so Silicon Valley's not the major player there. The Teamsters are, at least in well, the capital. Part, yeah, um, that that is a, a really critical point, and the fact is, is that you know a lot of our Silicon Valley tech people want to at least signal their virtue or stay out of the regulatory uh, crosshairs by going along with somebody like Gavin Newsom, right? So, um, yeah, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I came up. I, I was a I was a Marxist in in my twenties. I went to school to be a Catholic priest ended up in something called liberation theology. I'll fast forward and just say that I joined the Communist Party rather than become a priest and played in a punk band for a bunch of years. Um, and in that capacity of being a leftist, I worked with labor groups and eventually kind of moderated my politics a little, became a very kind of predictable 
blue state Democrat working for the Democratic Party and local campaigns, political campaigns. And my job was to bring the candidates to government unions and to introduce them so the unions could back the Democrat. With cops and firefighters, I thought this is going to be really hard. Uh, so my first time out on that job, I take a very left-wing Democrat from my hometown here in Orange County, and I take him to meet with the police union. We're driving in his Volvo over to go meet with these guys at the union headquarters, and I tell him, I'm anxious. I got to tell you, we're going to go meet with the jackbooted thugs of the of the oppressor class, the bourgeoisie, and you think they're going to back you? Uh, this guy who's into, you know, like Bernie Sanders style social welfare programs mm -hmm. and, you know, we've, uh, climate change stuff. This is the late 80s. And uh, you think they're going to go for that? I mean, like, uh, that seems like a stretch for cops. And he said, watch and learn. So we get in there. And uh, again, my first meeting, there's three cops sitting at a table. We sit down and join them, handshake, small talk. One of the cops kind of brings everybody's attention to the matter at hand. And he says, so Larry, you're looking for an endorsement. What can we expect from you in the next contract? And he said, I've read it. It's great. Well, that contract increased their pay dramatically, increased the union's control over discipline and hiring, recruiting, promotions. Um, it, was, it was a giveaway to the, to the local police union. And here was this left-wing guy, you know, anti-bourgeois as they come, saying, I'm in. And so the cop said, great. He turns to me, the cop does, the head of the union, and he says, uh, bring Larry over on Monday. We'll have two patrol cars, uh, K-9. Uh, we'll have a motorcycle. You bring the camera and the, and the candidate. And there it was. That was the image that my candidate wanted. He just wanted a picture of himself standing next to the cop so that he could soothe the anxieties of conservative suburban voters that he might be anti-cop, which would have been the death knell in this place. So... Um, right. I recall this when I when I reflect on the power of these government unions to distort politics. They didn't care about anything else he did, nothing else. And he did extraordinarily destructive stuff, rent control, utility freezes. I mean, he did stuff that has now had to be repealed by Democrats. It was so monstrously stupid. But the union didn't care. They got this. One, uh, uh, I had a public um, a government union official tell me a couple of years after that, we're single issue guys. We care about two things. Lots of pay and lots of retirement benefits. And yeah, maybe a third thing, control over the workplace all the time. Well, and it's it's interesting because, and I've just kind of watched California from afar for many years, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse from the standpoint of, I think you've probably got the largest state employees union, which I think is SEIU, in the country. And... It's anything that happens in the state house seems to have to go through or is promoted by the unions drafted like AB five was drafted by Lorena Gonzalez and, and her cronies. Right. So there's the one thing I wanted to touch on with you is um, something last week. And I was really curious about it. So for the last year or so, the, Unions, and particularly the SCIU, has wanted to take over the fast food industry and had a bill called AB 257 out there that set up essentially a fast food council where the government appointees would run the fast food industry there in California, right? Setting the wages, the policies, and all that sort of stuff. Something happened last week, and I was, I don't know what happened. And that's, 
<laughs> they, you, you've got it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, AB257 was signed about a year ago on Labor Day in 2022. Um, symbolism is important, right? right. So um, that bill would, as you say, set up basically a government union for fast food workers. Why? Because SEIU had been unable to organize fast food workers ever. It is right. a it's a volatile, mercurial elevator. It is a stepping stone, the fast food industry. I can't remember how many millions of Americans have worked in fast food. I'm one. Um, but the result of working in fast food is that you, you don't typically want to work the counter for the rest of your life, so you move up. So it's a very, you know, it's, it's very escalatory. You jump in, mm -hmm. you move up, and you become part of the establishment, or as the unions might see, a part of the problem. Your goal is not to stand at the counter for the rest of your life, typically. So they, they had a hard time, SEIU and other unions did, in organizing these guys. So they just decided, you know what, we're going to just do it by government fiat. So AB257 just said, we don't care what the workers want. We don't care what management wants. We know what's best for both. This is Lorena Gonzalez again. Um, mm. We're going to create this fast food council. So there's a provision of California law which says that before the, uh, up until the moment the law is enforced, that it becomes active, which would have been on January 1st of this year, um, opponents can gather signatures and qualify a referendum for that bill's repeal. And that's exactly what happened. The International Franchise Association stepped in like within weeks, raised and spent millions of dollars, gathered signatures, sent their new ballot to repeal their new ballot initiative to repeal AB 257 to the attorney general who had no real choice. The signatures were authentic. So even though he's a hardcore left-wing progressive Democrat, uh, our attorney general, a guy named Rob Bonta, approved it. So now the unions are, are ticked. So they start doing two things. They pass law, they, they pass a bill to reform the initiative and referendum process to make it much more difficult in the future for this ever to happen right. again. It's like, oh man, that. they discovered a weakness in the total control. But more importantly, they built a new bill called AB 1228. And this was like a gun to the head of the fast food industry. Like you thought that 257 was bad? Check out 1228. 1228 uh, created joint liability. Now that sounds like a really wonky term, but what it really means is the franchise model no longer works. Franchisers are businesses like, say, McDonald's or Jack in the Box or Carl's Jr. or whatever. And they basically license the right of their name and the use of their machinery, equipment, and food products and real estate, which they typically rent. That's McDonald's' great secret. They rent real estate, basically. Um, so 1228 said, hey, anything that happens in one of your franchisees' stores any workplace violation, any harassment, sex assault claim, any injury, all of that is now on you, the franchisor. Your, your liability is no longer severed. It is joint. So suddenly, you know, a large corporation like McDonald's is responsible for every single store. And for the franchisee who has worked and saved and worked and saved to buy a franchise in some location, this ends his or her status as an independent worker. If that sounds familiar, that's AB5, right? You're no right. longer independent. You now work for a much more high-profile, easily organized business space. So 
joint joint liability was a gun to the head of the franchise model. It just means like you're basically just in charge of thousands and thousands, maybe millions of stores now as a franchise or the franchisee has no authority, really. They're gone. They're just middle management. Let me ask you a quick question with that. So if I'm a franchisee and I've spent a couple hundred thousand, maybe a million or more to franchise as a McDonald's franchisee, so to speak, what happens to my investment under that model? Evaporates. I mean, yeah, you I've just are now an employee, right? You're a manager. Yeah, you're basically you have call it whatever you want from the law side. You know, the, they they can they can give you whatever title they want, but you are now beholden to the corporation. Why? Because a corporation's got deep pockets. That's where the lawsuit will land if you screw up, or if somebody just accuses you of screwing up. Right. So you are now, you have now paid hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, worked, you know, 60, 80, 100 hours a week, had your family in the shop to buy, to get this franchise up and going. And now the government just takes it and says, no, no, we're giving it to the franchisor so that we can sue them and force them to organize. So at that point, the International Franchise Association, which is the largest gorilla in the, you know, in the cage over on the one side, meets with SEIU and they hammer out a deal, provisions of which I can tell you. But it's basically you drop 1228, you postpone the Fast Food Council, that is the government uh, representatives who now represent the fast food industry. You postpone the introduction of the Fast Food Council until 2025. And we will drop our initiative in 2024 that would repeal AB 257. Uh, I could go into more provisions, but bottom line, they also guarantee a wage increase to $20 per hour under this new bill. So in California, we have something called gut and amend. That means that you can take a bill like AB 1228, the joint liability bill, they gut it. They just, they just draw a line through almost every single provision and the new 1228 uh, codifies the deal made between large franchisors and SEIU. $20 per hour, drop it, 1228. Um, no more food council for at least 12, for at least two years. Um, and you drop that initiative and referendum deal to repeal AB 257. So it's like a negotiated truce. Now, if you talk to the folks at IFA, the Franchise Association, um, they just saw this as the best thing they could do. Like it's, you know, from their perspective, this is truly a tragedy. Why? Because fast food businesses run on razor thin margins and right. the jump from fifteen fifty per hour to $20 per hour is going to mean that we'll see at least three things that even an amateur like me can predict. Higher labor costs in a razor thin business model mean you're going to have to automate rapidly terminate your employees because you can't afford those labor costs anymore. So you have to automate it. You know, more of those kiosks that you see mm-hmm. when you go into a McDonald's or your local bank branch of your bank, um, you're going to see concentration of ownership as some businesses simply look at their new labor costs under this deal. And they just say like, I just can't, I can't make it. I, I won't be able to make it. I don't have the cash to automate. I don't have the cash to pay 20 bucks an hour. And so they sell to the larger franchisees. So it will mean more corporate concentration. And many of these businesses will simply just close. The stores will close, particularly in places where the labor costs have meant an increase in menu prices. So you're gonna see this inflation. 
Right. Um, I call this automation, termination, inflation, desertification, and concentration. The desertification is stores close in places where the menu price spike is so severe that people in the neighborhood can no longer really afford to eat in this place. And so you do, your store just loses business and you close. That's called, a, on the left, that's called a food desert, the lack of available food opportunities. So this is a bad deal for California. When does when does the wage rate go up to $20? Is that immediate or is that in 2024? April, or? April oh, of 2024. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. So could be, I mean, the, the deal's not solidified. Um, the state is pressing for January 1st. IFA has said, like, look, somewhere between January 1st and April, we're good. Um, but that, that $20 per hour is going to be the thing to keep your eyeball on. So the minimum wage in California is fifteen fifty. you just said, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a warehouse down the street that's starting at $17 an hour, and the McDonald's on the other block is a twenty dollars an hour. That's a start rate, right? Right. Is that, okay. So you're going to see a, a vacuum of people quitting normal jobs just to go work at for three bucks more an hour, hypothetically, down the street at fast food. Places. That's yeah, yeah. This is again, and thank you for pointing that out. Um, unintended consequences or what look like unintended consequences are right. fully intended because right. the union knows, I mean, they're, they're claim like you have to climb into the head of a progressive. And I, I was once one was one once, sorry about that. Um, their logic is, gosh, if the state just distorts the market, I'm sorry, distorts is my word. If we just lift the floor, then everybody else will be required to race to meet that. But they don't think about what that might mean to things like customer service, business expansion, business investment, em- employment. This is going to, it's going to be inflationary. It's going to be disruptive. You're right. You're going to be having, you're going to have people run away from it. And it also create a more permanent class of workers. So the idea that a kid like me who in high school could go to work in a restaurant uh, for the summer, that opportunity is gone. Uh, because you're going to have full-time employees there expecting $20, $23 an hour is what SEIU is still asking for. So, uh, yeah, there, there are all kinds of knock-on effects. Well, I, I spend a lot of time in the private sector, and in compensation, and this is where a lot of the fight for 15, now I think it's fight for 20 or 17 or something like that, um, they seem to miss the boat in that, what happens is if you bring up that entry level to a certain degree, you have all the other employers or employees above that. Now you've just created compression. So if the employer does not jack up everybody else's wages, they're compressed. You have unhappy employees, or if the employer does jack it up, now you've got a whole competition issue of, am I going to jack up my prices for the consumers or my clients? And it just, it's this domino effect that we, we've seen it a lot of it just due to the reopening of since the pandemic, but it's creating, as you mentioned a moment ago, a lot of inflation. Yeah, it's fascinating you mentioned that. I, I hadn't really given that a lot of thought, but 20 is just the starting point, isn't it? And if I have a worker who's particularly great and I want him or her to step up, become more responsible, yeah. take on more authority and responsibility, 
what am I going to offer them? A dollar per hour for the trouble of, you know, managing all my employees? Or am I going to have to offer her $5 per hour more? Right. Across all of my stores, if I own three of them, now I've got, you know, let's say three shifts and three managers who are going to be making $5 per hour more. Um, which looks great until everybody else in the economy does it too. And then you have workers going out on strike because we're shocked. The price of goods is now suddenly more, Joe Biden. Right. What's going on right. here? Well, you know, not to pick on California too much, but you're in California. But I saw that recently the L.A. City Council either wants to or already did increase the minimum wage for workers in hospitals to $25 an hour. That's right. And and I think it's just state-run hospitals or somehow government-run hospitals. The, the county. The, yeah. So, again, if you've got, say, a hospital cleaner, you know, somebody cleaning the floors and all that sort of stuff, the minimum is now 25, but say Sally's been there for 30 years and she's at 26, now you've got, you know, a huge compression issue. Are you going to jack her up to 30 or 35? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the details I mentioned in this uh, negotiated truce between SEIU and the fast food industry is on that point of local, uh, the, the opportunity for local governments to actually raise things like L.A. and San Francisco, Oakland. Mm -hmm. They're they're infamous for saying, you know, you want to give people a million dollars per year for free? Not good enough. We demand five. Um, so this is um this new deal includes what the Franchise Association has been after for a long time, and that's a um, local preemption. That means that only the state gets to tell the fast food industry what it's going to pay. Because you do see these rogue actions. Yeah. And, you know, folks in L.A. who are on the left will tell you, well, it's very important because the cost of living in L.A. is more expensive than, say, Bakersfield or Fresno or Avila Beach. Right. Um, and that's that's true. But it's, uh, you know, it's still going to create inflation and it's still going to create distortions in the marketplace. And then they will blame capitalism, racism, sexism, whateverism, uh, and enforce a new pay hike again endlessly. Uh, they, they call this, I think you may have heard the expression, the self-licking ice cream cone. You just do this thing and when you're all done, it just keeps going because there's no limiting principle. So we didn't plan on talking about this, but I've got to ask you, since I just mentioned L.A., there's a big hotel dispute going on down there. And one of the issues is I believe that the union wants the hotel operators to house homeless. Right. And I think that's turning into a ballot measure as well, isn't it? That's right. Um, yeah, you're looking at the uh, sausage making of politics right there. The union wasn't able to persuade people any more, you know, in, in the hotel business. They weren't able to organize them well. They weren't able to get a lot of sympathy for their strike. So they, they're trying to cobble together a coalition. And one of the ways they've done this is to appeal to people who want to solve the homeless problem. So they've smuggled the homeless issue into the hotel business and said, you know, why not? But when we talk to hotel workers, especially those who have left SEIU, what they tell us is, I'm not interested in becoming a cleaner for a crack den. Like, you know, quite frequently you move homeless people in, you move them in with their prob their associated problems. 
And please hear me when I say, yes, there is a small minority of people on the streets who are not mentally ill, drug addicted, or alcohol addicted. Um, but the vast majority are people who have simply lost the skills of living or wouldn't be on the street. So now you right. move them into the hotel and you endanger not just guests, but the people who work there, ironically. But this is coalition building. Well, and from the union standpoint, if you have more people in the hotels, they obviously need more employees and more dues if they're unionized hotels. Yeah. Which, which makes sense. But sure. it's, it's interesting because, again, looking from afar, I think, well, would I want to stay in L.A. if that's part of that? So no. it's kind of like no, we, off um, your nose to spite your face. It is. Uh, but, you know, that, too, will turn out to be a feature for the unions because they'll say, look, we solved the homeless problem by simply confiscating the property of rich hotel owners right. and turning these places into, you know, the equivalent of youth hostels. Yeah. Homeless camps inside. Yeah. Used to be the W Hotel. Now it's a warehouse for the indigent. Right. Sorry to sidetrack. I, it just is we're talking about no, LA. And I'll tell you, there's, it's, it's interesting because that that process has already been tried in L.A. Um, you know that this the city has, and, and this is this truly is just a footnote. And then I'll let you move on. But uh, they they basically took over a bunch of hotels and were paying these. They take them over. They cut deals with these hoteliers, and they're paying you know in some cases up to five hundred dollars a night to house somebody. Uh, but when that failed, when the hotel rooms were simply trashed and people left and didn't find permanent housing, it didn't provide, in other words, the, the immediate results the, the city and the county had promised, uh, they, the, the unions stepped back in, the homeless advocates stepped back in and said, oh, well, that's because you didn't offer wraparound services, a fancy word for like, you know, medical, dental, food, education, literacy, crime prevention, right. psychotherapy, um, so that's the next step. And when that doesn't work again, you just say, well, we just didn't get enough money to do it. Let's try it again. Um, and there's just, again, no limiting principle for these dumb ideas. So you mentioned a moment ago that you've had so many people leaving California. And of course, everybody outside of California, when they see California plates coming in, are like, oh, God, don't, you know, don't Californicate my state. So is there any sort of sanity still left there? Yeah. Um, I well, think other this than is what's you and Lance and the folks at the California <laughs> Policy Center, but, you know, it's... Well, here's... Because it's such turning a big, it around? Yes. Um, because it's such a big state, uh, it may come as no surprise. Yeah, there's almost 40 million people here. So, right. and, you know, in a country with a population of, what, 330 million, as I said, we're about 12% of the country's population. We also have the largest number of registered Republicans of any state. Not a huge surprise. As a percentage, that ain't enough right? Uh, for common sense. But here's what's fascinating. Every year when we have those ballot initiatives that I described earlier, uh, I go through and I rank them as either pro-freedom or anti-freedom. You know, more government control, less government control, more freedom for individuals to chart their own course, or more room for regulators to tell you what to do. And then we watch the results and I'm telling you, for every year that I've done this, for 10 years now, California voters, when they don't have an, a Republican designation next to something, and we don't have this on our ballot initiatives, it doesn't say Republican or Democrat. It just says, um, you know, do you want to spend $5 billion on uh, building homeless camps in your neighborhood? Yes or no? Well, I would call that bad. Um, and so, too, do California's voters. 
They routinely vote in ways that are more conservative than you might anticipate. The, the disconnect, I think, is because there's no partisan label on it. So the answer one to your question is, yes, there's tremendous evidence right in that, that Californians, when they get to read even one paragraph about the lunacy of some of these ideas, reject them. They reject those ideas. That's why SEIU and others are trying to destroy the referendum process, because they can't control it any better than they have. Uh, the other uh, thing that I would point to is that on some significant issues, the left has overreached so badly and failed so um, utterly, clearly. Um, homelessness, crime, uh, education is a big one. You know, when you talk to Lance about uh, California Policy Center, you're you're going to get a big dose of education policy because he's also our education policy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, we're right now fighting the teachers unions all over the place over something called parent notification. And you can just tell me to stop if you don't want me to describe no, that's what's okay. going on there. Okay, no, go ahead. So in California, we, we drafted, uh, you know, Lance and a couple of uh, of our allies drafted what we call the parent notification policy. And it simply says... Hey, look, um, if a child, if your child or if a a school child is um, saying that he or she wants to use a a different name, different pronouns, use a different locker room than the one that would be assigned because of his sex or her sex, uh, wants to join a sports team that does not include, you know, their sex, uh, a boy who wants to join the girls swim team, um, you let the parents know within 72 hours. Now, this is not private decision-making or the child's innermost thoughts. This is a child's public declaration in a high school, for instance, that maybe they want to change genders. Um, you and I might have called it once upon a time just puberty, right? But um, right. but now this is evidence of what the left calls gender dysphoria. And to notify parents, that the California Teachers Association says, would be to expose them to uh, violence, suicide, murder, torture, psychological abuse from their parents. Now, in a California school, you you can't give a kid so much as an aspirin without asking for the parent's permission. But a child wants to change his or her gender, and you can't let the parents know because the parents are public enemy number one. So... We thought that just notifying the parents within 72 hours would be a reasonable deal. The California Teachers Association, that is the union of about 315,000 public school teachers in California, said, this is outrageous. This, you know, as I said, this will expose our children to extraordinary harm from their parents who are extremists. And therefore, only the state can be trusted to protect our children. So we've gotten this notification bill passed now and our policy passed in six local school districts. And the attorney general, the aforementioned Rob Bonta, stepped in and sued the first of those schools called Chino Valley Unified School District here in Southern California. And um, his argument is just, you know, a pig's breakfast. It's just dumb. Um, He cites federal laws that don't say what they say he says. He cites state laws which don't say what he says they say. He He ignores state law which says, hey, Kids are ultimately the responsibility of the parent, not the government. I mean, this is just like, this used to be considered one of those, um, uh, you know, Sac- universal. Sacrosanct, yeah. Yeah, it was just obvious. It was so obvious you didn't even need to have it embedded in the law. But it is embodied in ancient practice that parents have the greatest, by, by affection, we are more, we, we love our own children more than we love somebody else's. 
Not to say that we hate somebody else's, but we just we love our own children more than the government can. Not so, says Rob Bonta. Not so, says the teachers union. You people are the problem. And if I can get really philosophical here and reveal my my wonky grad school side, this is all the, the garbage that comes out of French and German deconstruction postmodern philosophy, that the family is the font and origin of all systematic oppression in the world. And if you could just destroy the family, you would overturn patriarchy, you would liberate children and women, uh, you, would liber you would even liberate the men, there'd be no more obligation to anyone, and the state could step in everywhere and protect these people and advance their interests as we all march toward the happy utopia that the Bolsheviks promised us in 1917, the one that led right to the gulags. So I may need you to go down that rabbit hole a little bit more. I was going to summarize it as a philosophical question of whose children are they, the states yes. or the parents. Um, but since you went down that road of cultural Marxism, the I, I think, and this is not just happening in California, although I had a former teacher from California, or she's still a teacher, but formerly from California on the podcast a couple months ago, and she was up in central, in the San Joaquin Valley. And so she said, I think what's happening is you'll see this more on the coasts, but not necessarily where we were. And so it's like regionalized cultural Marxism, if you will. And I've, I've talked to a few other people around the country, and it just seems to be in the larger urban areas where you're seeing this battle, if you will. But it's, yes. it's fascinating that the teachers union, and I, I Watching Randy Weingarten and Becky Pringle at the NEA, you can kind of understand why, but not that I agree with it. It's just, it's interesting to watch. Yeah, the most powerful teachers unions in California are naturally in the big cities. Why? Because that's where the people are, right? Uh, you have LA's United Teachers of Los Angeles is the second largest teachers union in the country behind the New York uh, City teachers union. Um, but it is richer, it is more powerful, it, uh, you know, they, they brag openly, we elect our own bosses. And by that, they don't mean the people who run the union. They mean the people who run the school district. We elect our right. own bosses. And then we sit across the negotiating table with the people we elected and bargain. I'm using air quotes here. Yeah. And then bargain over workplace rules. Well, that's led to just the lousiest school outcomes in America uh, California public schools, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, were considered like right up there, near the very top globally of public education. We are not even in the top 50 in the United States. We're right around Washington, D.C. level you know, terror. In fact, D.C. is considered far better. Um, we're at the bottom. Uh, so their explanation for that is, well, we don't have enough money. California spends more money per capita on kids, and especially in low-income areas where we have all kinds of state and federal subsidies, and we still produce the worst results. So, again, you have to follow that progressive model. If a progressive policy fails, it's because we didn't spend enough or impose enough regulation. Give us another shot. Then you do that and you fail, you do it again, and you keep doing it. So... Um, yeah, our, our teachers unions are just whack. But you are right. There are these massive regional variances, and that gets back to your earlier question. You know, is there any hope in California? Yes. If you go to the Central Valley, uh, this is a particular this the Central Valley of California, which includes places like Bakersfield and Fresno and Merced, uh, Stockton. 
these places look much more like America's Midwest than they do L.A., Hollywood, the Silicon Valley. It's it's a world apart. You can drive through these Sierra Nevada mountain towns on these winding two-lane roads, and out of nowhere, you'll you'll round a corner with massive trees around you, and the you know the Sierra Nevada off there, just a little bit in the distance, snow capped. And here's a town you've never heard of. I've lived here my whole life. One of my favorite things to do is explore these little mountain towns. They're red, and I mean Republican. They are conservative. They own guns. They don't like L.A. They they are remarkably like the people I meet when I travel in, say, you know, Michigan, rural Michigan especially, and right. and Kansas. Um, much more like that than like the L.A. I grew up in. Well, the problem, and I've, this is not just a California problem. This is just about everywhere in the country where you've got big cities they control the entire state yeah there's That's new right. york new york city controls the entire state yeah and so then everybody else in the state stuck with it yeah I, but not to go it, off on it, a tangent but i wanted to say what's happening with new california i thought you guys were yeah. having a secession going on <laughs> yeah well there was that i for those who don't know um there is this perennial secessionist kind of impulse in California. Uh, and, and just for a quick bit of history, one of those was would have created what's called the state of Jefferson. It would have taken several California counties in the far north, linked them up with some counties in Oregon, southern Oregon, to create a new separate state. Uh, that was supposed to be on the ballot on uh, December the 9th, 1941. But then oh, something really? happened. Just, yeah. Just before Election Day, something happened. Oh, yeah, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and the U.S. entered World War II. Uh, and it was immediately removed from the ballot. Um, just as, you know, it was seen as unpatriotic to create division. I did not realize it went back that far. Yeah. Uh, I, it, well, it's been, yeah, there's been this challenge since the state was founded in 1850. There was this tension at the time of its uh, introduction, you know, its, its statehood, this tension between North and South. The North tended to be more Republican and the South more Democrat. Um, and as we're approaching in the 1850s, the Civil War, you can just see it over the horizon, you know, in 1850. A lot of people already know, like, we got the slave problem. We're trying to figure this thing out. There was this fear that if you bifurcated the state, brought in part of it as a nominally at this point Republican, because I don't believe there was a Republican Party yet in 1850. I think it was still called the Whigs or something. But this this group in the North, in San Fran in, in particularly in San Francisco, that is absolutely dead set against the expansion of slavery. But in the South, in LA and Southern California, a lot more Democrats, many of them from places like Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, you start to see this kind of fervor to defend and advance slavery. And um, it never goes very far. The, the Democrats in Southern California are not all that fired up about slavery, but there's a small vocal minority. So California abandons the idea of bringing, uh, the, the, I should say, the federal government abandons the brief notion of bringing in two states, Northern and Southern California, whatever they might be called, and just says, no, 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 it's going to be one state. It's a free state. That's it. And this begins to trigger animosity in the Deep South, which had seen this place as potentially the springboard to global slave, slave empire, expanding way out into China, India, you know, what we now call Vietnam, um, and all the way south to the Tierra del Fuego of South America. I have never heard that history. 
Very cool. I love learning stuff when I'm doing these podcasts. Is it the best? I, yeah. I feel the same way that I'm like, I'm being paid to go to graduate school and relearn all the crap. I thought yeah. I shouldn't have said that on no, your show. Sorry, man. Um, but unlearn the Marxism. I literally studied Marxist theory as a graduate student and not as a critic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think for those of us on this side of the aisle, so to speak, most of us started out on the left. You know, I certainly a friend did. of mine says, yeah, a friend of mine says, if you haven't been a, well, I mean, this is the Winston Churchill line, right? right. If you're not right. a liberal at 20, you have no heart. If not a conservative by 40, you have no head. Right. Um, that's me. You know, I was a Marxist at 20, 19. And uh, by the time I start having kids and running a business and et cetera, I start to question some of those assumptions that I picked up in graduate school and in the CPUSA. Oh, were you CPUSA? Yeah. Interesting. About 18 months. Okay. Yeah. yeah they were very active in the uh, Amazon unionization in Staten Island. Is that right? Yeah. CPUSA. And the workers it's- were cool with this. Well, the, there's a young lady who um, was taken, I don't know that they knew actually, but there's a young lady who's the co-chair of the Young Communist Party in New York who is in numerous pictures with Chris Smalls at the victory of ALU in Staten Island. And they did phone banking from CPUSA's headquarters in Manhattan, you know, calling the Amazon workers before the election. So it doesn't get brought wow. up that much, but it's out there. Just have to yeah. like dig it. I got bored with the arguments about you know what, who, which side are you on, the Bolsheviks or the Mensheviks? And I was like, oh dear Jesus, <laughs> let me out of here. I get lost in all that. So let me come back to California. You had mentioned something, and I saw this, but I, you know, it's kind of like, haha, shame on them. Your state legislative staff are unionizing. Is that that's right? Uh, that's a that's yet another bill. It's Assembly Bill One, and I think the. The, the um, numerology there is important, right? The first thing they could think of this year was we're definitely going to organize legislative staff. And this would create yet another government union movement embedded deeply in government, right? So um, along with a couple of other bills I could tell you about, this is really problematic because a lot of the people who would be organized are not working for partisan officials. They work in like the the office of, you know, the finance office, just looking at financial impact, which is supposed to be just specifically mathematical. But in California, the unions attack that office specifically because it points out like, hey, you want this bill to support unions, it's going to cost a trillion dollars or whatever the number is. I'm just exaggerating, but you get the point. Um, What's going to happen to those workers if they're now part of a union that has a benefit in seeing unionization made stronger? So just one more special interest, like teachers, cops, firefighters, and DMV workers. Uh, So a lot of us uh, oppose this. Um, It has its own kind of momentum inside a state house dominated by the government unions. Uh, So this, this will make our state legislature in not just in name, but in action, but in actual function, just an arm, a wing of the California Federation of Labor. Well, let me ask you to use your example. If, for example, you've got the budgetary office that's going to be examining numbers of very, you know, the finances of various bills, as in if I'm a Republican legislator and I want to have a bill put before the assembly, can I trust those numbers? Or am I going to have to go get somebody else or is, you know, certain legislators going to have to go find another body to actually do the accurate analysis? 
Well, one of our donors to CPC were funded entirely by donations, uh, unlike our friends on the left who get government grants in the millions of dollars. But um, uh, this donor told me, hey, Will, the AB1, you should like this. This will make your organization, you know, permanently employable by legislators who want an independent analysis of finance. He was being humorous, I think. <laughs> but the fact is that, you know, this will this will create real problems. I mean, we already have this problem down to the level, as I say, of our schools, our police departments, our fire departments, our city councils. Um, you know, one of the reasons that California Policy Center set up a, a network of local elected officials was because local officials, even of, of good intention, get elected with, let's call them free market or liberty principles as part of their core beliefs. But they get elected, and then they're suddenly surrounded by staff who are frequently union and who have zero incentive in seeing government limited. They want more government. They want more jobs, more income, more revenue, higher taxes, more bond debt, not less. So, yeah, you are correct that having a legislative staff that is now union will create that same problem on steroids inside the state house. Well, we're seeing some of this in Washington, too. They, uh, I think it was Nancy Pelosi that allowed the legislative staffs Independent individually to unionize. Yeah. And so where would Nancy Pelosi of San Francisco get that idea? Right. Well, and it's, I don't know that it's taken off that much. Some of the Democrats in DC have voluntarily recognized unions for their staffs, but I haven't seen any contracts emerge yet. They may be there. Well, you know, this is what's great about being part of a union. Uh, I'm sorry, a union of states, I mean. Um, you know, the, the federal government, even when you have elected Democrats, Joe Manchin comes immediately to mind as the most obvious example, are not in lockstep with somebody like AOC. Uh, right. You know, the, it is a big tent. In California, those Democrats have been purged. Uh, we don't allow them into the state house. Uh, they are primaried out by far more extreme radical lefties. Um, the union money just trashes anybody, you know, who does not serve their interests. So Republicans are gone. We have a supermajority in California state house. That what that means is, not only is every statewide office held by a progressive Democrat, but every but the legislature is veto proof. So if Gavin Newsom decided, you know, to impose a kind of common sense on energy policy or whatever, um, you've got a veto proof majority in the state house to over override that veto. So uh, has, has he ever vetoed anything? Oh, yeah. This has been one of the here's a side note for us, a side conversation. As the talk about Joe Biden's incompetence or age related problems advances, people begin to focus on Kamala Harris as a real liability. Kamala Harris, of course, the vice mm -hmm. president who's from California, was a senator from California, was an attorney general here. Not well liked. A, a you know progressives hater for their own reasons, conservatives hater for obvious ones, I think. Um, but she is really a, a problem for Biden. So the talk has been, hmm, maybe Joe Biden punts Kamala Harris, brings in Gavin Newsom as VP, then resigns to quote spend more time with family. Newsom ascends, becomes the incumbent, and runs for president in 2024. And that's not the only. We're not saying that's the only one. No, like today. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, like they're talking about by mid-October this has to happen because there's fear on the Democratic side. And, you know, in my job I have to 
make common cause or at least be friendly with Democrats, including consultants who work inside, deep inside government in California. And their hypothesis is that Biden may not even be able to beat Donald Trump for a whole bunch of reasons now. Mm. And the graver concern to Democrats is if Trump wins, like, this is really bad, you know? Um, and whatever one thinks of Donald Trump, to the Democrats, that's an existential crisis. So they're talking about having Joe dump Kamala, bring in Gavin Newsom or Gretchen Whitmer or, uh, oh, gosh, uh, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro. Shapiro. Thank you, yeah. brother. Yeah. Um, others are named. Uh, L.A. County Mayor Karen Bass would fit because she's a woman and she's black and you can't kick out Kamala Harris, bring in a white man. But the Newsom hypothesis, let's call it, has Newsom electrified. And so we as Californians, I don't know what you guys are seeing from your lofty promontory on the East Coast, but we watch Newsom travel advertise, speak, go on Fox News with Sean Hannity and talk about how great the Democrats are for America. He's a very charismatic guy. He's a uh, quote factory. He's, you know, he trolls uh, Greg Abbott in Texas and Ron DeSantis in Florida. So they're still As, talking about this. This was a yes. rumor a month, two months ago. I thought he squashed it, though. Oh, uh, he's been quashing that rumor, quote unquote, from the beginning, I'm a complete Biden, uh, you know, uh, acolyte. About two weeks ago, he said, oh, my gosh, Joe Biden is delivering a master class in politics. He's a genius. So energetic, I can't keep up with him. Uh, man, if you can't keep up with Joe Biden, you are standing still or walking backwards. No offense to him, but, you know, whatever else you think of Joe Biden, shame on his family for not stepping in right now. I would not put my dad through that. But anyway... Newsom is not given up. He protests too much because even as he's saying, uh, I would never run, he's got a bank account uh, to start. He is wildly popular with in-state Democrats who are very, very wealthy. So this is still in the game. I think it's not likely at all. I think, first of all, it's not likely that Biden's going to change the, the ticket. He's just not a flexible dude. Second, if he did, I don't think he'd bring in a white guy as his number two. Um, because that's not how that party rolls. So I don't think it's likely, but it has moderated Newsom's policy thinking. I shouldn't even say thinking about policy. It's his political thinking. It's if he doesn't veto some of the most extraordinary bills, he's going to look crazy out there on the campaign trail. Like right now, we're in the middle of a pitched battle over reparations payments. I mentioned that California was never a yes. slave state. Yep. We've set up a reparations study commission that recommends $1.5 million per qualifying African-American resident of California. Qualifying means you had a relative in the United States before 1900 who was black. That's it. That qualifies you for reparations in from state taxpayers in a state that was never a slave state that was a safe haven for African-Americans from the Deep South in the 19th century. And in the early 20th century, throughout our history, African-Americans left the Jim Crow South up and through the 70s to come to California because it was, if not perfect, far better than the alternative down in Mississippi. So um, anyway, there's been, you know, Newsom's a guy who signed the reparations bill. He's the guy who created this group. That, yeah. Yes. And yet he will not sign off on the final bill about these payments. And there's 
all kinds of confusion on the left about like, why would he do this? He said that he would. This is outrageous. Like, why is he dragging his feet? Like, he wants to be president of the United States and you can't campaign in the rest of the United States with the reparations bill tied to your tail like a can on a dog. And there are others. You know, that's just the most extraordinary example. But he has vetoed bills. He has stalled them. He has stepped in. A couple of weeks ago, the Public Safety Commission inside the uh, committee, rather, inside the state assembly uh, tried to kill a bill that would enhance penalties for those engaged in the sex trafficking of children. So get that. There was a bill, which we helped create that would just say like look man this should be a serious felony qualifying for third strike and 25 years in prison well the public safety committee said this is outrageous this is terrible because black men will be disproportionately affected by this which struck me as one of the most racist things that anybody could have said like somehow black men are the 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 chief purveyors of children involved in sex trafficking my god Newsom immediately did anybody else pick up on that Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. The, the, even Democrats said, what the what? Like, you, you, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? So Newsom had to step in and twist the arm of this powerful Democrat from L.A., a guy who's also on the reparations committee, by the way, and tell him, basically, you take another vote. I don't care how you do it. You make sure this thing passes your committee. And it took about 24 hours. There was a new vote. This guy was just this L.A. Democrat. Reggie Jones Sawyer is his name. Uh, was just livid. You could tell. Just sat with his ha- head in his hands at the hearing. Abstained because he would not vote for it. But it passed uh, with Republicans and a couple of Democrats. That's all it took. So Newsom knows what this stuff looks like nationwide. And I'm saying that, please, dear God, keep hope alive. Tell Newsom he's got a shot at being president either now or in 2028. But he's got to keep a lid on this thing. He's got to control crime, got to control homelessness. It's Newsom who's behind a bill that would expand the ability of government to involuntarily commit for treatment, obviously, gravely mentally ill homeless people. Used to be in California, if you're walking around the streets saying that God had ordered you to murder someone uh, or talking to heaven on a Dixie cup, that we could commit you and put you in a state hospital and help you to some extent. But all that went away in a weird coalition that we could talk about on some other podcast, if you'd like. But uh, the point is it all went away. We don't have mental hospitals anymore, but we do have the country's largest homeless population, not just in absolute numbers, which you'd expect, but also as a percentage of our population. Right. Yeah. And of course, and you never know living on the other side of the country, how much of this is social media and you, you see the crimes and you see the beatings and people walking into Walgreens and in San Francisco and carrying out like how much of that is overblown because of social media versus actually happening. Well, and, and that is a hard thing. You know, and I, I understand, like I'll, t- I'll tell you on this, this um, public safety committee uh, hearing where they voted to kill this bill to enhance penalties for sex trafficking of children. When I first heard that that was their vote, I told, it was Lance who told me, Lance Christensen, mm-hmm. your friend, my friend, my colleague, um, he and I were getting ready for a Zoom call to, to record Radio Free California, the podcast we do for National Review. And Lance gets on and he goes, did you just hear about Reggie Jones-Sawyer and the Public Safety Committee? And I said, well, on what issue? He said, our bill, the sex trafficking of minors. And I said, what happened? He said, they voted against it. They killed it. It's dead. 
I said, no way. That's made up. <laughs> Where are you getting this? He said, Will, I'm talking to a reporter who's in the committee chamber now. She just told me. So we both were flipping through the social media. There's very little there except from a few of the reporters who were present. And their report was like, you know, people were just in tears. They couldn't believe what had just happened. And uh, so there is that moment where you say, I know California's crazy, but they're not this crazy, right? Yeah, they're this crazy. <laughs> yeah. And my, wanna, my favorite is... And you want to foist Gavin Newsom on the rest of the country. No, not really. What I'm asking you to do is help him inflate his fantasy of himself as a great statesman. Mm. He needs to hear that for my sake. Please, dear God. It'll moderate him. Yeah. I wonder what all the Californians who've left California would do if you were running as president. They would have PTSD. <laughs> I, I, yeah, where, where are they going to go? They probably still do. <laughs> yeah. So I... I I'm, I have, have a, friend a whole who works, bunch of family sorry, members that just left California within the last two years uh, during the pandemic and settled here in the Southeast that they basically had to flee because of all the stuff that was happening during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Our um, middle son and his wife moved from L.A. County to, um, to North Carolina, and he picked me up at the Charlotte airport the first time I flew out there to go stay with them. And... Um, I climb in his truck. It's this brand new F-150 massive truck. And it's literally towing a bass boat through the right. airport. And I said, damn, little brother, life has been good. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm like hillbilly rich, man. I'm hunting. I'm fishing. <laughs> right. I, said, uh, I said, can I can I borrow a Kleenex? And he said, yeah, right there in the glove compartment. So I'm sitting in the passenger seat, pop open the glove box. There's a handgun and a holster with a safety lock on it. Mm -hmm. right? those, those features are important. And I stop and he looks over and he realizes instantly because he knows me man you know we're not a gun family here in orange county california and he said oh damn sorry about that uh hey welcome to the land of freedom <laughs> that's right yep so yeah. our, our family is adjusting to life outside of california yeah once you can escape those states i escaped the state in the northeast that uh is very similar not quite as bad as california but getting there new jersey and once you escape and realize that there are freedoms out there yeah, that, that well, you just, a lot of I people think it's, take for granted. It's sadly just as likely that California expats come into places like, say, Nashville or Austin and then replicate the very electoral, electoral proclivities, the, the habits of electing Democrats and progressives that got California to trouble. Mm -hmm. And we see this even internally in California. Poll results results show that during COVID, people left places like San Francisco and Oakland, L.A., and moved inland uh, because they could move to cheaper places and work remotely. But they brought their voting habits with them. Um, I was up in uh, the northern uh, L.A. County uh, area, you know, San Fernando Valley, Thousand Oaks, Temecula. I'm sorry, not Temecula, Thousand Oaks and uh, that area, uh, Ventura County. And I was meeting with a group of uh, Republicans, and they told multiple stories of people moving in from L.A. because they hated the crime, hated the homelessness, hated the dysfunctional government generally, hated the high taxes, and then proceeded to vote for those very same policies that would produce those same outcomes in what had been a very Republican part of, of L.A. and uh, Ventura counties. So there's this challenge you know a lot of the californians who leave leave in rebellion against the state 
many others leave just because they're unthinking and they think that the idea of living without COVID masks, uh, rampant crime and homelessness, uh, traffic jams is going to be better in Austin or Nashville and then vote for the very same principles, very same kinds of people. Yeah. I talk to people in all over the country and it's, we're, we're seeing that even here where I live as well. Mm. You know, we, I'm we, sorry. Don't get the, we don't get so many Californians. We get people from New Jersey, New York, up North right. that come down. Yeah. Florida's filled up. So now we're like, you know, it's backing yeah. up, up the, I have noticed in my lifetime, I have noticed in my lifetime that the accent of a Floridian went from what I would have described as soft South to New York yeah. and specifically <laughs> like right. Manhattan, Bronx, yeah. Queens, um, yep. And, uh, you know, I'll run into uh, when I'm in Florida on work, meeting with my counterparts from other states. You, know, you go down to the, the hotel pool and there's, you know, five Jersey cops and their wives and they're drinking and hooting and hollering and living the good life. And, well, you, you know, know planning to retire. It's interesting. And this is kind of part of the economic malaise that these blue states have set up for themselves is they've got these very rich pension plans that, you know, cop after 20 years, fire after 20 years, they'll get their pensions. And because the taxes are so high up north and they'll sell their house, which may be a small three-bedroom house, but it's worth a gazillion dollars, take it south where their money goes further. And, you know, that's taking the money, the, the tax spending and everything else that they would normally spend up north, taking it down to one of the now, you know, Purple states. That's right. Yeah, these government unions in California, and again, I know you and I likely disagree on this issue about public safety, cops, firefighters, prison guards, but the fact is, is that they are willing to fleece the taxpayers because they they have a they have a often legitimate belief, and I'll, I'll especially say this of cops and prison guards, that their work is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, firefighting is not dangerous anymore, especially in an urban environment. Just not danger. There are far more occupations out there that are far more dangerous than being a firefighter in Orange County, California. Nevertheless, they retire with 350 large and they move to Idaho. And then they start talking like a Republican. Then it's all about keeping taxes low. Then it's all about fighting the government unions there. But back here, don't kill the goose that got us here, man. You know, this, this is what made us rich. Um, And they will defend it. I have a friend who's a retired uh, fire captain who makes $400,000 a year in retirement from his pension, yeah, but has become a consultant for a fire department in another state and routinely drives by to, you know, good-naturedly rib me with his latest vehicle purchase. Uh, most recently, it was an up-armored SUV. And I said, what the hell do you need armor for? And he said, the apocalypse, dude. The zombies are coming. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think it was a vanity project, frankly, but... Yeah. So that's that's what that's what taxpayers in California and this is what the working class is paying for. If they are not in a government union, they are working so hard to produce these just astronomical retirement packages for government union members who are all saying, no, 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 we're doing this for the working people. We do this to protect the working people. No, you're not. You're doing it for yourself. Get over it. I think and your the working income people tax, pay those taxes. Your Pardon? income tax is the highest in the country, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah we have like, the highest marginal tax rate, about 151,000 Californians pay almost all of our income tax here. And they're slowly leaving the state, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. Yeah. That's unfortunately, that's uh, part of the problems with having income tax that's like that. 
Well, and it yeah. always goes to feed the government. That's right. So, Will, we've been on for a while. I figured because Lance has been on here at least two or three times that people know the California Policy Center, but, and I'm going to include the links as I always do. How can people get hold of you? Yeah, sure. They can go to uh, Cal Policy Center, CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. That's the uh, website, CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. Um, my email is in there. If you go to the podcast that I do for National Review, you can go to National Review website, go look up podcasts, Radio Free California. That has my email in there as well. Um, I'm on Twitter, at Will Swaim, and um, we're very easy to find. We do not hide ourselves, despite the the craziness out there. Yeah, we're always you know, delighted to connect with with Californians, but we have a lot of national donors, too, who are very interested in making sure that what happens in California stays here. That's right. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, actually, you should co-opt the Vegas. Uh, I think you're right. Um, I just thought of that. That <laughs> hadn't... <laughs> That was an original here. That doesn't happen very yeah. often. <laughs> yeah, let's let's make sure what happens in California stays in California. Yeah. Well, Will Swaim, thank you for coming on Labor Relations Radio. It was a pleasure to have you on. I, I got to talk to the El Jefe. So. Uh, uh, we have a very flat hierarchy here. It's a small team, so being yeah. El Jefe is just now, one, Lance has been one of great. the Indians. He's a great guest, uh, and, and now yeah. I've got somebody else from CPC to have on. I am so delighted, and I'd love to have you on my show as well. Um, you know, that uh, this is not blowing smoke or back scratching. It's, um, you know, I just I think that what Californians need to know more about is what is the national landscape? How does California fit in with these other states? Um, the ones you've mentioned, you know, the Illinois, New Jersey, New York's even I think you could argue Pennsylvania is sort of heading this direction. So, um, yeah, I'd love to have you on. Let's talk. Yeah, you are. The, you guys are the vanguard of all the things not to do in public policy. That makes me sad. I think you could have stopped it with, we are the vanguard of all the things not to do in public. That too. Thanks for coming on. A pleasure. So that was California Policy Center's Will Swaim, and it was great to meet him. I realized after we were done that there were several topics that we are going to talk about and didn't get to, so perhaps we can have him back on sometime soon. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening and have a great week. I don't want I'm just a man living in one eye stand I'll tell you what I need Oh, Black Creek You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.